So we've reached the time of the service uh, for the Bible reading. Uh, so if you have one of these Bibles, if you just want to open up to page 824, we're looking at Galatians chapter 3 today, um, verse 1 through to chapter 4, verse 7. From chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law has been, had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. For most of uh, the first two chapters of Galatians, which we're looking at, Paul's been explaining why the Galatians should be listening to him and not to the people who are telling them that they should get circumcised and follow the law. And he's been doing that, we've been seeing, by telling his own story, telling the story of how he became an apostle, how he met with the other apostles, and then last week telling the story of how he confronted Peter. In chapter 3, our chapter today, Paul turns his attention back to the Galatians and they probably would prefer that he didn't. Look at verse 1, what he says. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He doesn't hold back. And then notice what he says. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Paul says Christ crucified is central and if the Galatians had kept their eyes on the cross and what it means then they couldn't have gone wrong because the cross shows us crystal clear that human effort can't make us right with God so God needed to make us right through Jesus the cross also shows us crystal clear that the time of the law is over And a new time is here. Have a look at the next verse, verse 2. Or you might need to have a look in your Bibles. Is there anything on the screen there, Joe? All blank? Okay. Grab your Bibles. It's always good to look in your Bibles anyway. Galatians 3, verse 2. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? The cross radically changes things. It stands at the the center of the history of the world. It ends some things like the law and it marks the beginning of something new, which we see there in verse 2. Like from now on, all God's people receive God's Spirit by faith. Now, on top of this, the cross shows crystal clear that no further effort is needed to make us right with God. We can't add to what Christ has done. So have a look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You don't become a child of God by grace and then stay a child of God by effort. But that's exactly what the Galatians would be doing if they added the law. Probably what's happening is the Jewish false Christians who we heard about last week who are pushing circumcision, 
are saying to the Galatians, God made his promise to Abraham. And yes, Abraham had faith. But then God added to that the law. So just like you have faith in Jesus, you need to add the law. But Paul says that's not how it works. And most of chapters 3 and 4 is Paul explaining that Abraham actually shows the opposite. So today, let's see if we can very briefly follow what he's saying. If you remember our pop-up moment about three weeks ago, you'll remember that Abraham is very significant in God's plan for the world. God makes his unconditional promises to him, promises of land, offspring and blessing. Paul says in chapter 3 verse 6, consider Abraham and then he quotes Genesis 15, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is an example of how God makes us right with him through faith. And so look what Paul says in verse 7. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. It's not by circumcision. It's not by the law. It's not even by being born Jewish that you're Abraham's promised offspring. It's by faith in Jesus. Faith makes you a child of blessing or promise, as we'll see in a minute. Now imagine if you're one of those Jewish Christians who are pushing the law. This is quite offensive, isn't it? Because Paul is saying that their law-keeping and nationality don't make them a child of the promises, the very opposite to what they they thought. In fact, Paul says those who rely on the law are actually separated from the promises and the blessing. Have a look at verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. No one can fully keep the law. So the law just shows us that we're sinners and therefore we're cursed. But faith, faith in Jesus, liberates us from the curse of the law. You see that in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus' death on the tree, the cross, is all about him being cursed instead of us. Now for some reason when I hear the word curse, my mind goes straight to Harry Potter. But apparently that's not what Paul has in mind. What he's saying is that breaking the law makes us worthy of death. That's the curse. And Jesus buys us back from that fate by coming under that fate in our place. So as we saw with the kids, Jesus saves us from facing the consequences of failing to keep the law. Paul's asking the Galatians, do you really want to give up the blessings and come back under the heavy hand of the law. What on earth would bewitch you to to want to do that? You can't have both. You can't have faith in Jesus and faith in the law. You just, they don't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't go together. They're completely different with different outcomes. Relying on the law equals being cursed. Relying on Jesus equals being blessed. The next thing Paul wants to say 
is that not only are faith and the Lord different in outcome, but they're also different in that one precedes the other. Jump down to verse 17 now in chapter 3. And Paul writes, The law introduced 430 years later, that's 430 years after God gave his promises to Abraham, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. What he's saying there is that God is not like my kids. Okay? One of them comes back from a birthday party with a lolly bag or something like that. And they give one of the other kids, one of their brothers or sisters, a free gift, a lollipop or something like that. And it's moments like those as a parent that you sort of think, oh, wow, I must be doing something right. Everyone's happy. There's generosity. It's amazing. But two minutes later, suddenly there's all sorts of conditions, requirements, caveats, subclauses. And you realize you're actually doing something terribly wrong as a parent because your kids are well on the path of becoming a lawyer. God's not like that. God, when he gives a free promise, it stays a free promise. Have a look at verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. You can't give an unconditional promise like God gave to Abraham and then make it conditional. In other words, the law is an entirely different thing to the promise. God's plan to bless the whole world, to reverse sin, it doesn't depend on the law. It depends on His promise, on His grace. It depends on His performance alone. Now, when this was read, did you notice there's a couple of confusing things in this bit? Let me just quickly address them because I want you to be able to read this later on and, and, and understand it for yourself and not just have to take my word for it. Have a look back at verse 16 where Paul writes, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What's that all about? Seed in English and Greek and Hebrew is a collective noun. It's like people or fish. You don't say fishes. I mean, imagine someone's selling you fish who says, for $200, I'll give you the fish. So you pay $200 and you get a small whiting. And you'd say, what's the go? And he says, I said fish, not fishes. Now, you'd be thinking that kind of grammar was pretty fishy, wouldn't you? <laughs> you knew it was coming. <laughs> now, it sounds like Paul here is doing some dodgy kind of fishy grammar of his own, doesn't it? But the first thing to notice is verse 29, if you jump across to that, where Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you, plural, are Abraham's seed. Paul's very aware that seed is a collective noun. That's, that's exactly the way he's using it there. The other thing is that some of the references to seed have in mind in Genesis and those kind of places, all of Abraham's descendants, there's no, no denying that, but some seem to have in mind a particular descendant, like Isaac. Uh, passages like Genesis 24-7, Isaac is Abraham's seed. What Paul is saying is, is remarkable. 
here. In the unfolding story of the Bible, Jesus is the one true seed or offspring of Abraham. He's the one true Israelite. The promises, they they narrow down completely, right down to just one person, him. And they come to others, like us, only through him, only in him. It's kind of like all the promises narrow down to one point. And it's only in him that they then widen out to include us as well. We'll come back to this in a minute because it's actually kind of the point of the whole passage. But first, before Paul gets there, he needs to answer the obvious question. If the law curses and doesn't bless, and if the promises precede the law, why on earth was the law ever even added in the first place? And he answers this in verse 19. Have a look at it. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was added because of sin. Now Paul doesn't really elaborate what that means in this context, but from other places in the Bible like Romans 7, we know that the law identifies sin and identifies that we need a saviour. Now, because the law has such a close connection to sin, you could be tempted to think that the law is a bad thing. But that would be a mistake. Paul says, even though the law and the promise are completely different things, they're not opposed to each other. They're on the same team. Have a look at verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Righteousness doesn't come by the law because it's just not possible. And verse 22 tells us why. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. The problem's not with the law, the problem's with us, with sinners, lawbreakers. We're completely imprisoned in this state and we have no way out. Imagine you're a a German soldier and you're in Nazi Germany. You're stuck working for an evil regime and you don't really have any way out. And then you're on the front line in France, you're captured by allied forces and you're put in a prison camp. That's a humane one. It, It feeds you and it stops you going back to join the Nazi war effort. But there's finally peace, the war's over, and you're free to go from the prison camp. Now, was the prison camp evil? No. The Nazi regime was evil. The prison camp might not have been fun, it might have been basic, and it would have constantly identified you as a Nazi, but it was actually a good thing for you and a good thing for the world. So now that the war's over, do you want to stay behind in the prison camp? Well, of course not. You want to enjoy your freedom and get on with rebuilding your country and leaving behind the evil past as best as you can. The prison camp, if you like, was good in that it kept you and led you to the point when you could be released. That's what the law was like. It held them. It kept them. It identified evil. It restricted evil. It brought them to the day when they could be released 
and leave the, war behind, leave the law behind. Have a look at verse 23. Before this faith, this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And now that Christ has come, it's time to leave the prison. Verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The cross of Jesus changes everything. We're not prisoners of the law anymore. The law doesn't even supervise us anymore. Instead, we see what we are in verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of us who have faith in Jesus are sons of God. Even if you're not a man, you're a son. Let me explain that because it sounds a bit odd. Back then, the heir was a male, always a male. But to be an heir in the family of God, your gender is irrelevant. So is your nationality. And so is your social status. And so is anything else. All that matters for being an heir in the family of God is having faith in Jesus. Look at verse 27. For all of you were baptized into Christ, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When we trust in Jesus, we're baptized. This means we're immersed. We're clothed in Christ. We're surrounded by Christ. God doesn't see us when it comes to our righteousness. He sees Christ. And when we're in Christ, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. None of these things are relevant when it comes to being an heir of God. Now the Jew, the free man, the male, they were considered the natural heir um, back in those days. But the only way to be an heir in the culture of, of the kingdom of God is by belonging to Christ through faith. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. We saw that. But through connection to Jesus, we are Abraham's seed too. Heirs of the promise. Now, Joe, is there a slide there that has a kind of complicated picture at all? Diagram? No. Wow. That's a shame. It was beautiful. <laughs> we'll leave it behind. In the weeks to come, we'll see how heirs are to live. Uh, we'll see how sons are to enjoy their freedom. We'll see that they're to live lives of love. That they're to live lives led by the Spirit. We'll see that like an orange tree can't help but produce oranges. Well, heirs can't help but live lives of love. That's for the next three weeks. But today, the really key thing for us to take away is that idea that was captured in verse 3, where Paul says, After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Our goal is justification. It's being right with God. Now, we're not likely to try and attain that goal by going back under the law. 
That's not particularly our issue. But thinking that we continue to be right with God by human effort, that's very much our issue, isn't it? It's just that the kind of human effort that we engage in is is of a different kind to the Galatians. Now, if you've been a Christian for more than 10 seconds, you know in your head, I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by what Jesus has done. And you know, I don't stay saved by what I do. I stay saved by what Jesus has done. We know that in our head, but do we know it in our hearts? Does your heart think that you stay acceptable to God by human effort? When you do something that you know is is really wrong, really offensive to God, does your heart tell you that you've blown it? I don't know what, what it would be for you. You know, is it going weeks and weeks without reading the Bible? Is it failing to care enough to tell people about Jesus? Is it yelling at your wife or your husband or your kids? Is it pornography again and again? Or is it getting drunk? Does your heart say to you at those times, that's it? There's no chance for someone like you to be right with God. Where's your faith at that point? Where's your confidence? It's in your performance, isn't it? It's in human effort rather than Christ crucified. Or maybe you're someone who could never imagine stuffing up in a way like that, in a major way. And so you find it hard to understand people who do. You could never imagine yourself doing something terrible, something like an affair or something like that. That's just not the kind of person you are. And you could never forgive yourself if you ever did. If that's the way we think, that we're above that sort of thing, where's our confidence? Isn't it in our human effort rather than Christ crucified? Now, it's true that faith expresses itself in love, that trusting in Jesus affects the way we live. And it's true that those who live unaffected by the Holy Spirit will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's true that the only way that you can live unaffected by the Holy Spirit is if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's because you don't have real faith in Jesus. All of that's true and and we'll see it over the next three weeks. But let me see if I can show you how we mix up this, this up in our heads and turn something that's true into something that's not. See, some of us, especially certain personalities, that have the tendency to become obsessive-compulsive fruit analyzers. You know, we, we ask ourselves, do we have the fruits of the Spirit? Is my faith real? Is it expressing itself in love? Is it expressing itself in love enough? Am I really saved? But when we're looking like that, where are we looking? When we start thinking like this, where's our confidence? It's inhuman effort again, isn't it? Are our eyes fixed on Christ crucified at that point or on ourselves and our fruit? Let's fix our eyes on Christ and let Him take care of the fruit. If your eyes are on Jesus, you actually won't be able to help it. You might not even be able to see the fruit yourself. If you're the kind of person who's overly critical, you might not be able to see it at all. But so what? God sees it. 
and other people see it. Keep your eyes off yourself, keep your eyes on him. If you're struggling with a particular sin, if you're looking at yourself and and you're thinking, I just don't look like a son, don't think that you can change that. Don't think your discipline, your effort, your mental beating yourself up is going to make you more acceptable to God. It won't. Neither will it make you more like Jesus. You can't make yourself more like Jesus. But God can. Look to Jesus. Keep your confidence in Him, not in your efforts. See, whatever our eyes are fixed on Him, we're completely and utterly sons, heirs, clothed in Jesus, not in our own efforts. And in God's time, He'll overcome in us whatever doesn't belong. He'll lead us by His Spirit to produce the fruit that He wants. Paul said to the Galatians, Christ crucified says it all. If only we can keep our eyes fixed on Christ crucified, then we too can't go wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken so powerfully to us in the cross, that it stands at the centre of time as the most important thing that you've done in this world, in the history of this world. Lord, help us to take full note of it, to see that here is your action to bring about the promises that you made to Abraham, to restore the world. Lord, help us to see that our own effort can't bring us to receive those promises, neither can our own effort keep us in those promises, that we're dependent on you and you alone. Lord, as we wrestle through what it means to follow you and be sons and heirs, help us to realise that our fruit flows from what you've done for us in Christ and that we are not made worthy of you or, or justified in your eyes by what we do at the beginning of our time as a Christian, nor at the end, Lord, that the whole time that we belong to you, it's only because we're clothed in Christ, that you see him and not us. Lord, as we wrestle through this over the next three weeks, help us to celebrate being heirs and to figure out how that does change how we live, but to see that it's about grace and your mercy flowing through into our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name and ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen.